Chapter Three of the Empire of Russia From the Remotest Periods to the Present Time. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jean Bascom. The Empire of Russia from the Remotest Periods to the Present Time by John S. C. Abbott. Chapter Three reigns of valdemar yaroslav yisyaslav and vesevolod from nine seventy three to ten ninety two flight of valdemar his stolen bride the march upon kiev debauchery of valdemar zealous paganism introduction of christianity baptism in the Danaper entire change in the character of valdemar his great reforms his death usurpation of sviatopolk the miserable accession of yaroslav his administration and death accession of yisyaslav his strange reverses his death vesevolod ascends the throne his two flights to poland Appeals to the Pope. Wars, famine, and pestilence. Character of Vesevolod. Though Valdemar had fled from Russia, it was by no means with the intention of making a peaceful surrender of his realms to his ambitious brother. For two years he was incessantly employed upon the shores of the Baltic, the home of his ancestors, in gathering adventurers around his flag to march upon Novgorod and chase from thence the lieutenants of Yaropolk. He at length, at the head of a strong army, triumphantly entered the city. Halfway between Novgorod and Kiev was the city and province of Polotsk. The governor was a Norman named Rovgolod. His beautiful daughter, Rogneda, was affianced to Yeropolk, and they were soon to be married. Valdemar sent ambassadors to Rovgolod, soliciting an alliance and asking for the hand of his daughter. The proud princess, faithful to Yeropolk, returned the stinging reply that she would never marry the son of a slave. We have before mentioned that the mother of Valdemar was not the wife of his father. She was one of the maids of honor of Olga. This insult roused the indignation of Valdemar to the highest pitch. Burning with rage, he marched suddenly upon Polotsk, took the city by storm, killed Rovgolod and his two sons, and compelled Rogneda, his captive, to marry him paying but little attention to the marriage ceremony. Having thus satiated his vengeance, he marched upon Kiev with a numerous army, composed of chosen warriors from various tribes. Yeropolk, alarmed at the strength with which his brother was approaching, did not dare to give him battle, but accumulated all his force behind the ramparts of Kiev. The city soon fell into the hands of Valdemar, and Yeropolk, basely betrayed by one of his generals, was assassinated by two officers of Valdemar acting under his authority. Valdemar was now in possession of the sovereign power, and he displayed as much energy in the administration of affairs as he had shown in the acquisition of the crown. He immediately imposed a heavy tax upon the Russians to raise money to pay his troops. Having consolidated his power, he became a very zealous supporter of the old pagan worship, rearing several new idols upon the sacred hill, and placing in his palace a silver statue of Perun. His soul seems to have been harrowed by the consciousness of crime, 
and he sought by the cruel rites of a debasing superstition to appease the wrath of the gods. Still remorse did not prevent him from plunging into the most revolting excesses of debauchery. The chronicles of those times state that he had three hundred concubines in one of his palaces, three hundred in another at Kiev, and two hundred at one of his country seats. It is by no means certain that these are exaggerations, for every beautiful maiden in the empire was sought out to be transferred to his harems. Paganism had no word of remonstrance to utter against such excesses. But Vatimar, devoted as he was to sensual indulgence, was equally fond of war. His armies were ever on the move, and the cry of battle was never intermitted. On the southeast he extended his conquests to the Carpathian Mountains, where they skirt the plains of Hungary. In the northwest he extended his sway by all the energies of fire and blood, even to the shores of the Baltic and to the Gulf of Finland. Elated beyond measure by his victories, he attributed his success to the favor of his idol gods, and resolved to express his homage by offerings of human blood. He collected a number of handsome boys and beautiful girls, and drew lots to see which of them should be offered in sacrifice. The lot fell upon a fine boy from one of the Christian families. The frantic father interposed to save his child but the agents of Valdemar fell fiercely upon them, and they were both slain and offered in sacrifice. Their names, Ivan and Theodore, are still preserved in the Russian church as the first Christian martyrs of Kiev. A few more years of violence and crime passed away when Valdemar became the subject of that marvelous change which, nine hundred years before, had converted the persecuting Saul into the devoted apostle. The circumstances of his conversion are very peculiar, and are very minutely related by Nestor. Other recitals seem to give authenticity to the narrative. For some time Valdemar had evidently been in much anxiety respecting the doom which awaited him beyond the grave. He sent for the teachers of the different systems of religion, to explain to him the peculiarities of their faith. First came the Mohammedans from Bulgaria, then the Jews from Jerusalem, then the Christians from the Papal Church at Rome, and then Christians from the Greek Church at Constantinople. The Mohammedans and Jews he rejected promptly, but was undecided respecting the claims of Rome and Constantinople. He then selected ten of the wisest men in his kingdom, and sent them to visit Rome and Constantinople, and report in which country divine worship was conducted in the manner most worthy of the Supreme Being. The ambassadors returning to Kiev reported warmly in favor of the Greek church. Still the mind of Valdemar was oppressed with doubts. He assembled a number of the most virtuous nobles and asked their advice. The question was settled by the remark of one who said, Had not the religion of the Greek church been the best, the sainted Olga would not have accepted it. This wonderful event is well authenticated. Nestor gives a recital of it in its minute details and an old Greek manuscript, preserved in the Royal Library at Paris, records the visit of these ambassadors to Rome and Constantinople. Valdemar's conversion, however, seems, at this time, to have been intellectual rather than spiritual. A change in his policy of administration rather than a change of heart. Though this external change was a boundless blessing to Russia, there is but little evidence that Valdemar then comprehended that moral renovation which the gospel of Christ effects as its crowning glory. He saw the absurdity of paganism, he felt tortured by remorse, 
Perhaps he felt in some degree the influence of the gospel which was even then faithfully preached in a few churches in idolatrous Kiev, and he wished to elevate Russia above the degradation of brutal idolatry. He deemed it necessary that his renunciation of idolatry and adoption of Christianity should be accompanied with pomp which should produce a widespread impression upon Russia. He accordingly collected an immense army, descended the Danaper in boats, sailed across the Black Sea, and entering the Gulf of Cherson near Sevastopol, after several bloody battles, took military possession of the Crimea. Thus victorious, he sent an embassage to the emperors Basil and Constantine at Constantinople, that he wished the young Christian princess Anne for his bride, and that, if they did not promptly grant his request, he would march his army to attack the city. The emperors, trembling before the approach of such a power, replied that they would not withhold from him the hand of the princess, if he would first embrace Christianity. Baltimore, of course, assented to this, which was the great object he had in view, but demanded that the princess, who was a sister of the emperor's, should first be sent to him. The unhappy maiden was overwhelmed with anguish at the reception of these tidings. She regarded the pagan Russians as ferocious savages, and to be compelled to marry their chief was to her a doom more dreadful than death. But policy, which is the religion of cabinets, demanded the sacrifice. The princess, weeping in despair, was conducted, accompanied by the most distinguished ecclesiastics and nobles of the empire, to the camp of Valdemar, where she was received with the most gorgeous demonstrations of rejoicing. The whole army expressed their gratification by all the utterances of triumph. The ceremony of baptism was immediately performed in the church of St. Basil, in the city of Cherson, and then, at the same hour, the marriage rites with the princess were solemnized. Valdemar ordered a large church to be built at Cherson in memory of his visit. He then returned to Kiev, taking with him some preachers of distinction. A communion service wrought in the most graceful proportions of Grecian art, and several exquisite specimens of statuary and sculpture, to inspire his subjects with a love for the beautiful. He accepted the Christian teachers as his guides, and devoted himself with extraordinary zeal to the work of persuading all his subjects to renounce their idol-worship and accept Christianity. Every measure was adopted to throw contempt upon paganism. The idols were collected and burned in huge bonfires. The sacred statue of Peroun, the most illustrious of the pagan gods, was dragged ignominiously through the streets, pelted with mud and scourged with whips, until at last, battered and defaced, it was dragged to the top of a precipice and tumbled headlong into the river, amidst the derision and hootings of the multitude. Our zealous new convert now issued a decree to all the people of Russia, rich and poor, lords and slaves, to repair to the river in the vicinity of Kiev to be baptized. At an appointed day the people assembled by thousands on the banks of the Danaper. Valdemar at length appeared, accompanied by a great number of Greek priests. The signal being given, the whole multitude, men, women, and children, waded slowly into the stream. Some boldly advanced out up to their necks in the water. Others, more timid, ventured only waist-deep. Fathers and mothers led their children by the hand. The priests, standing upon the shore, read the baptismal prayers, and chanted the praises of God and then conferred the name of Christians upon these barbarians. The multitude then came up from the water. Valdemar was in a transport of joy. His strange soul was not insensible to the sublimity of the hour and of the scene. 
Raising his eyes to heaven, he uttered the following prayer. Creator of heaven and earth, extend thy blessing to these thy new children. May they know thee as the true God, and be strengthened by thee in the true religion. Come to my help against the temptations of the evil spirit, and I will praise thy name. Thus, in the year 988, paganism was, by a blow, demolished in Russia, and nominal Christianity introduced throughout the whole realm. A Christian church was erected upon the spot where the statue of Peroun had stood. Architects were brought from Constantinople to build churches of stone in the highest artistic style. Missionaries were sent throughout the whole kingdom to instruct the people in the doctrines of Christianity and to administer the rite of baptism. Nearly all the people readily received the new faith. Some, however, attached to the ancient idolatry refused to abandon it. Valdemar, nobly recognizing the rights of conscience, resorted to no measures of violence. The idolaters were left undisturbed save by the teachings of the missionaries. Thus for several generations idolatry held a lingering life in the remote sections of the empire. Schools were established for the instruction of the young, learned teachers from Greece secured, and books of Christian biography translated into the Russian tongue. Valdemar had then ten sons. Three others were afterwards born to him. He divided his kingdom into ten provinces, or states, over each of which he placed one of these sons as governor. On the frontiers of the empire he caused cities, strongly fortified, to be erected as safeguards against the invasion of remote barbarians. For several years Russia enjoyed peace, but with trivial interruptions. The character of Valdemar every year wonderfully improved. Under his Christian teachers he acquired more and more of the Christian spirit, and that spirit was infused into all his public acts. He became the father of his people, and especially the friend and helper of the poor. The king was deeply impressed with the words of our Saviour, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, and with the declaration of Solomon, He who giveth to the poor lendeth to the Lord. In the excess of his zeal of benevolence he was disposed to forgive all criminals. Thus crime was greatly multiplied, and the very existence of the state became endangered. The clergy, in a body, remonstrated with him, assuring him that God had placed him upon the throne expressly that he might punish the wicked and thus protect the good. He felt the force of this reasoning, and instituted, though with much reluctance, a more rigorous government. War had been his passion. In this respect also his whole nature seemed to be changed, and nothing but the most dire necessity could lead him to an appeal to arms. The Princess Anne appears to have been a sincere Christian, and to have exerted the most salutary influence upon the mind of her husband. In the midst of these great measures of reform, sudden sickness seized Valdemar in his palace, and he died, in the year 1015, so unexpectedly that he appointed no successor. His death caused universal lamentations, and thousands crowded to the church of Notre Dame to take a last look at their beloved sovereign, whose body reposed there for a time in state in a marble coffin. The remains were then deposited by the side of his last wife, the Christian Princess Anne, who had died a few years before. The Russian historian Karamsin says, This prince, whom the church has recognized as equal to the apostles, merits from history the title of great. It is God alone who can truly know whether Valdemar was a true Christian at heart, or if he were influenced simply by political concerns. It is sufficient for us to state that, 
after having embraced that divine religion, Valdemar appears to have been sanctified by it, and he developed a totally different character from that which he exhibited when involved in the darkness of paganism. One of the sons of Valdemar, whose name was Fiatopolk, chanced to be at Kiev at the time of his father's death. He resolved to usurp the throne, and to cause the assassination of all the brothers from whom he could fear any opposition. Three of his brothers speedily fell victim to his bloody perfidy. Yaroslav, who had been entrusted with the feudal government of Novgorod, being informed of the death of his father, of the usurpation of Sviatopolk, and of the assassination of three of his brothers, raised an army of forty thousand men and marched upon Kiev. Sviatopolk, informed of his approach, hastened with all his troops to meet him. The two armies encountered each other upon the banks of the Danaper, about one hundred and fifty miles above Kiev. The river separated them, and neither dared to attempt to cross in the presence of the other. Several weeks passed, the two camps thus facing each other, without any collision. At length, Yaroslav, with the Novgorodians, crossed the stream stealthily and silently in a dark night, and fell fiercely upon the sleeping camp of Sviatopolk. His troops, thus taken by surprise, fought for a short time desperately. They were, however, soon cut to pieces or dispersed, and Sviatopolk himself saved his life only by a precipitate flight. Yaroslav, thus signally victorious, continued his march without further opposition to Kiev, and entered the capital in triumph. Sviatopolk fled to Poland, secured the cooperation of the Polish king, whose daughter he had married, returned with a numerous army, defeated his brother in a sanguinary battle, drove him back to Novgorod, and again, with flying banners, took possession of Kiev. The path of history now leads us through the deepest sloughs of perfidy and crime. Two of the sisters of Yaroslav were found in Kiev. One of them had previously refused the hand of the king of Poland. The barbarian in revenge seized her as his concubine. Sviatopolk, jealous of the authority which his father-in-law claimed, and which he could enforce by means of the Polish army, administered poison in the food of the troops. A terrible and unknown disease broke out in the camp, and thousands perished. The wretch even attempted to poison his father-in-law, but the crime was suspected, and the Polish king, Boleslas, fled to his own realm. Sviatopolk was thus again left so helpless as to invite attack. Yaroslav, with eagerness, availed himself of the opportunity. Raising a new army, he marched upon Kiev, retook the city, and drove his brother again into exile. The energetic yet miserable man fled to the banks of the Volga, where he formed a large army of the ferocious Pechenegues, exciting their cupidity with promises of boundless pillage. With these wolfish legions, he commenced his march back again upon his own country. The terrible encounter took place on the banks of the Alta. Russian historians describe the conflict as one of the most fierce in which men have ever engaged. The two armies precipitated themselves upon each other with the utmost fury, breast to breast, swords, javelins, and clubs clashing against brazen shields. The Novgorodians had taken a solemn oath that they would conquer or die. Three times the combatants from sheer exhaustion ceased the strife. Three times the deadly combat was renewed with redoubled ardor. The sky was illumined with the first rays of the morning when the battle commenced. The evening twilight was already darkening the field before the victory was decided. The hordes of the wretched Sviatopolk were then driven in rabble rout from the field, leaving the ground covered with the slain. 
the defeat was so awful that sviatopolk was plunged into utter despair half dead with terror tortured by remorse and pursued by the frown of heaven he fled into the deserts of bohemia where he miserably perished an object of universal execration in the annals of russia the surname of miserable is ever affixed to this infamous prince yaroslav thus crowned by victory received the undisputed title of sovereign of russia it was now the year ten twenty for several years yaroslav reigned in prosperity there were occasional risings of barbaric tribes which by force of arms he speedily quelled much time and treasure were devoted to the embellishment of the capital churches were erected the city was surrounded by brick walls institutions of learning were encouraged and most important of all the bible was translated into the russian language it is recorded that the king devoutly read the scriptures himself both morning and evening and took great interest in copying the sacred books with his own hands the closing years of life this illustrious prince passed in repose and in the exercises of piety while he still continued with unintermitted zeal to watch over the welfare of the state nearly all the pastors of the churches were greeks from constantinople and yaroslav apprehensive that the greeks might acquire too much influence in the empire made great efforts to raise up russian ecclesiastics and to place them in the most important posts at length the last hours of the monarch arrived and it was evident that death was near he assembled his children around his bed four sons and five daughters and thus affectingly addressed them i am about to leave the world i trust that you my dear children will not only remember that you are brothers and sisters but that you will cherish for each other the most tender affection ever bear in mind that discord among you will be attended with the most funereal results and that it will be destructive of the prosperity of the state by peace and tranquillity alone can its power be consolidated yisyaslav will be my successor to ascend the throne of kiev obey him as you have obeyed your father i give chernigov to sviatoslav periaslav to vesevolod and smolsk to vyacheslav i hope that each of you will be satisfied with his inheritance your oldest brother in his quality of sovereign prince will be your natural judge he will protect the oppressed and punish the guilty on the nineteenth of february ten fifty four yaroslav died in the seventy-first year of his age his subjects followed his remains in tears to the tomb in the church of saint sophia where his marble monument carved by grecian artists is still shown influenced by a superstition common in those days he caused the bones of oleg and yeropolk the two murdered brothers of valdemar who had perished in the errors of paganism to be disinterred baptized and then consigned to christian burial in the church of kiev he established the first public school in russia where three hundred young men sons of the priests and nobles received instruction in all those branches which would prepare them for civil or ecclesiastical life ambitious of making kiev the rival of constantinople he expended large sums in its decoration grecian artists were munificently patronized and paintings and mosaics of exquisite workmanship added attraction to churches reared in the highest style of existing art he even sent to greece for singers that the church choirs might be instructed in the richest utterances of music he drew up a code of laws called russian justice which for that dark age is a marvellous monument of sagacity comprehensive views and equity 
the death of Yaroslav proved an irreparable calamity, for his successor was incapable of leading on in the march of civilization, and the realm was soon distracted by civil war. It is a gloomy period of three hundred years upon which we must now enter, while violence, crime, and consequently misery desolated the land. It is worthy of record that Nestor attributes the woes which ensued to the general forgetfulness of God, and the impiety which commenced the reign immediately after the death of Yaroslav. God is just, writes the historian. He punishes the Russians for their sins. We dare to call ourselves Christians, and yet we live like idolaters. Although multitudes throng every place of entertainment, although the sound of trumpets and harps resounds in our houses, and mountebanks exhibit their tricks and dances, the temples of God are empty, surrendered to solitude and silence. Bands of barbarians invaded Russia from the distant regions of the Caspian Sea, plundering, killing, and burning. They came suddenly, like the thundercloud in a summer's day, and as suddenly disappeared where no pursuit could find them. Ambitious nobles, descendants of former kings, plied all the arts of perfidy and of assassination to get possession of different provinces of the empire, each hoping to make his province central and to extend his sway over all the rest of Russia. The brothers of Yisiaslav became embroiled and drew the sword against each other. An insurrection was excited in Kiev, the populace besieged the palace, and the king saved his life only by a precipitate abandonment of his capital. The military mob pillaged the palace and proclaimed their chieftain, Vesislav, king. Yisiaslav fled to Poland. The Polish king, Boleslas II, who was a grandson of Valdemar and who had married a Russian princess, received the fugitive king with the utmost kindness. With a strong Polish army accompanied by the king of Poland, Yisiaslav returned to Kiev to recover his capital by the sword. The insurgent chief who had usurped the throne in cowardly terror fled. Yisiaslav entered the city with the stern strides of a conqueror and wreaked horrible vengeance upon the inhabitants, making but little discrimination between the innocent and the guilty. Seventy were put to death. A large number had their eyes plucked out, and for a long time the city resounded with the cries of victims, suffering under all kinds of punishments from the hands of this implacable monarch. Thus the citizens were speedily brought into abject submission. The Polish king with his army remained a long time at Kiev, luxuriating in every indulgence at the expense of the inhabitants. He then returned to his own country, laden with riches. Yisiaslav reascended the throne, having been absent ten months. Disturbances of a similar character agitated the provinces which were under the government of the brothers of Yisiaslav, and which had assumed the authority and dignity of independent kingdoms. Thus all Russia was but an arena of war, a volcanic crater of flame and blood. Three years of conflict and woe passed away, when two of the brothers of Yisiaslav united their armies and marched against him and again he was compelled to seek a refuge in Poland. He carried with him immense treasure, hoping thus again to engage the services of the Polish army. But Boleslas infamously robbed him of this treasure, and then, to use an expression of Nestor, showed him the way out of his kingdom. The woe-stricken exile fled to Germany and entreated the interposition of the emperor, Henry IV, promising to reward him with immense treasure and to hold the crown of Russia as tributary to the German Empire. The emperor was excited by the alluring offer, 
and sent ambassadors to sviatoslav now enthroned at kiev ostensibly to propose reconciliation but in reality to ascertain what the probability was of success in a warlike expedition to so remote a kingdom the ambassadors returned with a very discouraging report the banished prince thus disappointed turned his steps to rome and implored the aid of gregory the seventh that renowned pontiff who was ambitious of universal sovereignty and who had assumed the title of king of kings Yeziaslav, in his humiliation was ready to renounce his fidelity to the greek church and also the dignity of an independent prince he promised in consideration of the support of the pope to recognize not only the spiritual power of rome but also the temporal authority of the pontiff he also entered bitter complaints against the king of poland Yeziaslav did not visit rome in person but sent his son to confer with the pope gregory rejoiced to acquire spiritual dominion over russia received the application in the most friendly manner and sent ambassadors to the fugitive prince with the following letter gregory bishop servant of the servants of god to Yeziaslav, prince of the russians safety health and the apostolic benediction your son having visited the sacred places at rome has humbly implored that he might be re-established in his possessions by the authority of st peter and has given his solemn vow to be faithful to the chief of the apostles we have consented to grant his request which we understand is in accordance with your wishes and we in the name of the chief of the apostles confer upon him the government of the russian kingdom we pray that st peter may preserve your health that he will protect your reign and your estates even to the end of your life and that you may then enjoy a day of eternal glory wishing also to give a proof of our desire to be useful to you hereafter we have charged our ambassadors one of whom is your faithful friend to treat with you verbally upon all those subjects alluded to in your communication to us receive them with kindness as the ambassadors of st peter and receive without restriction all the propositions they may make in our name may god the all-powerful illumine your heart with divine light and with temporal blessings and conduct you to eternal glory given at rome the fifteenth of may in the year ten seventy five thus adroitly the pope assumed the sovereignty of russia and the right and the power by the mere utterance of a word to confer it upon whom he would the all-grasping pontiff thus annexed russia to the domains of st peter another short letter gregory wrote to the king of poland it was as follows in appropriating to yourself illegally the treasures of the russian prince you have violated the christian virtues i conjure you in the name of god to restore to him all the property of which you and your subjects have deprived him for robbers can never enter the kingdom of heaven unless they first restore the plunder they have taken fortunately for the fugitive prince his usurping brother sviatoslav just at this time died in consequence of a severe surgical operation the polish king appears to have refunded the treasure of which he had robbed the exiled monarch and Yeziaslav, hiring an army of polish mercenaries returned a second time in triumph to his capital it does not appear that he subsequently paid any regard to the interposition of the pope we have now but a long succession of conspiracies insurrections and battles in one of these civil conflicts Yeziaslav, at the head of a formidable force met another powerful army but a few leagues from kiev in the hottest hour of the battle a reckless cavalier in the hostile ranks perceiving Yeziaslav in the midst of his infantry precipitated himself on him pierced him with his lance and threw him dead upon the ground 
His body was conveyed in a canoe to Kiev, and buried with much funeral pomp in the church of Notre-Dame, by the side of the beautiful monument which had been erected to the memory of Valdemar. Yeziaslav expunged from the Russian Code of Laws the death penalty, and substituted in its stead heavy fines. The Russian historians, however, record that it is impossible to decide whether this measure was the dictate of humanity, or if he wished in this way to replenish his treasury. Vesevolod succeeded to the throne of his brother Yeziaslav in the year 1078. The children of Yeziaslav had provinces assigned them in appanage. Vesevolod was a lover of peace, and yet devastation and carnage were spread everywhere before his eyes. Every province in the empire was torn by civil strife. Hundreds of nobles and princes were inflamed with the ambition for supremacy, and with the sword alone could the path be cut to renown. The wages offered the soldiers on all sides was pillage. Cities were everywhere sacked and burned, and the realm was crimsoned with blood. Civil wars necessarily followed by the woes of famine, which woes are ever followed by the pestilence. The plague swept the kingdom with terrific violence, and whole provinces were depopulated. In the city of Kiev alone, seven thousand perished in the course of ten weeks. Universal terror and superstitious fear spread through the nation. An earthquake indicated that the world itself was trembling in alarm. An enormous serpent was reported to have been seen falling from heaven. Invisible and malignant spirits were riding by day and by night throughout the streets of the cities, wounding the citizens with blows which, though unseen, were heavy and murderous, and by which blows many were slain. All hearts sank in gloom and fear. Barbarian hordes ravaged both banks of the Danaper, committing towns and villages to the flames, and killing such of the inhabitants as they did not wish to carry away as captives. Vesevolod, an amiable man of but very little force of character, was crushed by the calamities which were overwhelming his country. Not an hour of tranquillity could he enjoy. It was the ambition of his nephews, ambitious, energetic, unprincipled princes, struggling for the supremacy, which was mainly the cause of all these disasters. End of chapter 3